So most, what most people often forget, because as you say, it doesn't get much coverage anymore, tragically, is that the Afghan war is the longest war in US history. It started obviously in October 2001, and the Taliban who were running the country were overthrown within a matter of weeks. But here we are 17 years later, and the war is dragging on, and the Taliban now controls more territory than at any time since uh, just before they were overthrown in 2001. So it is a complete disaster. There are more civilians being killed now than any time since the war began. Um, and one of the things I was interested in, and I've spent time there, I was there in 2012 and 2015, looking at the role of the growing privatisation of war. So that was happening pretty much from the beginning when the Bush administration, who was um, George W. Bush, who was president in 2001 when um, the US invaded, that the ideology behind that was this belief that, yes, the U.S. military should go in there and invade and overthrow the Taliban, but also private industry should have a major role, which was a disaster because they're far less accountable. I mean, you have private mercenaries who literally were going around killing, murdering, torturing Afghans without any accountability. Unsurprisingly, it was one of the reasons amongst many that the insurgency was growing against the U.S. and other Western forces. So... What was fascinating for me was I'd been following Eric Prince, who, as he said, was the founder of Blackwater, which was a private military contractor, which existed before 9-11, but expanded after that. And Prince, amongst other people, was very clever from his perspective. He was able to hook into this idea that the US wanted to privatise much of its war. So Blackwater, amongst others, was really providing a lot of private security, both to companies, but also to governments, particularly the US government, to allegedly protect their forces, but often they were committing huge amounts of crimes. And these people who Blackwater were hiring were usually former US and other soldiers. So fast forward to the last few years, um, George W. Bush obviously finishes his term, Obama comes in, Eric Prince is a Republican. For eight years or so during the Obama years, he took a much lower profile, within the US at least. Trump comes in, obviously, a few years ago, and he's a big supporter of Trump. He loves Trump. His sister is Betsy DeVos, who is the education secretary under Trump. So there's an ideological alignment. And Prince has been saying two things briefly. One, he's pushing the argument to Trump that the U.S. should privatize the entire war, meaning that after 17 years, the war is not going well for the U.S. That part of it is true. But what Prince believes in a delusional way is that the U.S. should pull its forces out. He can provide five to 6,000 private contractors who work with Afghan forces to allegedly win the war. And he claims it will cost a lot less than what the U.S. is doing. Now, the last part is true. I don't doubt that for a fact. But this idea somehow that a privatized, unaccountable military mercenary force can somehow tame a country, which has never, by the way, allowed a foreign army to actually succeed from the British days to the American days. So that has been an argument that Trump has not accepted so far. But the other argument, just briefly, that I recently reported on was that Prince is also looking to exploit the country's mineral resources. So under the ground in Afghanistan, there's anywhere between one to four trillion US dollars of untapped resources. That's copper, cobalt, particularly lithium. And some of those resources are the ones that are used in the devices that you and I use every day. So laptops, tablets, mobile phones, and electric car batteries, particularly, which obviously is a growing industry. So what Prince has been trying to do 
going to Afghanistan, meeting government ministers, opening a office of his company now, which is called Frontier Services Group, a logistics company based out of Hong Kong, to try to exploit the country's resources. Now, so far, that's a work in progress for him. And interestingly enough, at the beginning of this year, 2019, it was announced literally on the 1st of January that Prince is running a fund to try to raise 500 million US dollars to um, raise money to be able to find resources and minerals that are used for electric car batteries, namely cobalt and others. And the countries that particularly where cobalt is found is DRC, um, Democratic Republic of Congo and Afghanistan. So all the pieces kind of are coming together. And this is concerning for self-evident reasons because Prince has spent his whole life really uh, believing that he's very, very anti-Muslim, he's Islamophobic, that's on the public record. So that's concerning to operate in a Muslim country with those kind of beliefs. And his um, military forces over the years have caused huge amounts of carnage. So Prince is someone who we should be watching very closely. Certainly. Now you say that, of course, the the war in Afghanistan has been one of the longest running in U.S. history, and it's uh, been incredibly expensive, uh, costing uh, over one trillion dollars. And I, I guess there's a you know therefore a huge incentive from the U.S. to uh, to go with this idea of uh, particularly exploiting the uh, the the minerals in in Afghanistan. Now, but as you said though, they haven't uh, the the State Department haven't clearly supported this plan so far. But, I mean, what did you learn in terms of, you know, Trump's sort of, I guess, support? I mean, clearly, he's, he, Prince has been considered an uh, advisor to Trump. And, and does it yes. feel as though that, uh, you know, if, if this continues, that it could very much become a reality and, and that Trump would definitely support something like this, particularly in terms of the mineral exploitation? Look, Trump is a contradiction in so many ways, and this is not by any means as a defense of Donald Trump, I can assure you. But there is a weird thing. During the election campaign in 2016, uh, listeners will remember that Trump was really the only candidate openly critical of U.S. wars in the Middle East. Now, yes, admittedly, he said he was against the Iraq war. In fact, he supported it. When he's come into power, he's in some ways in many countries increased military forces, he's increased drone attacks in Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia. Trump is not some anti-war candidate. I'm not saying that for a second. But what he has done in many ways is, for example, calling for the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria, which is happening slowly but surely. He's calling for around half of the U.S. forces in Afghanistan. There are about 14,000 left. He's calling for the removal of 7,000. He's also ramping up potential peace talks between the Taliban, the U.S. and the Afghan government, something which is vital for that war to end. Um, So... On the one hand, Trump, unlike, I would say, many others, certainly Republicans and some Democrats, I think basically says these wars have been a complete waste. Why are we there? However, and it's a very, very important however, what Trump has said is that if we're going to stay in Afghanistan, we should make money. In other words, there are a lot of resources under the ground. Why aren't American companies basically turning a profit from this? Now, that's clearly deeply, deeply problematic. So what he's been doing in the last few years is talking to a range of American companies who are active in the resource extraction business. And this, I think, is where this thinking comes from. Now, Eric Prince is one amongst many. DynCorp, which is a massive U.S. contractor, is another. And essentially, there is pushback 
for these sort of ideas in various parts of the US government. Now, the US is definitely pushing for mineral contracts to be signed. They're putting pressure on the Afghan government to sign contracts. There's been some two major contracts signed in the last few months. There's likely to be more coming in the coming year. Now, as for what happens in Afghanistan, there's going to be an election this year, apparently, for a new president. History would suggest it's going to be corrupt and inefficient and a complete mess. Now, what's going to happen there is anybody's guess. Who knows? But the what Eric Prince has been trying to do, um, amongst other things, is trying to support certain candidates in that presidential campaign who support his idea of extracting the resources. Now, what Prince is saying on the record, and of course what he says privately are two very different things, but he doesn't deny um, that he's trying to exploit the resources. And in fact, the announcement this year of a fund to raise money in relation to supporting electric car battery minerals really makes sense from Prince's perspective. And one of the things I'm actually doing a story about this at the moment is that if we, as people who believe, for example, in improving the environment, and electric cars potentially have that possibility, that's obviously a good thing. But the downside is, frankly, how do we feel as a society moving towards the potential of electric cars where the resources that will go into those electric car batteries are likely coming from conflict minerals, countries where children literally as young as six are involved in mining those resources, which I might add is quite similar to what happens with all our mobile phones. So anyone who's got an iPhone or an Android, which is most people these days, a lot of people anyway, um, the resources that are going into that phone are usually coming from countries where people are being exploited for those resources. So there is still a profound disconnect between the devices that we will use every day for our entertainment or work and how those resources are getting to us and those devices. So I think the future of the war in Afghanistan, I, at the moment it doesn't seem likely that Trump will accept the move to privatizing the entire war, despite Eric Prince pushing for that. But let's face it, Trump is a very unpredictable character um, and the Pentagon and the State Department are against those plans and they've been the ones really who pushed back against it in the past two years but let's see um, I think it would be a complete disaster by the way I think it would be violent and awful and bloodier than it is now I don't support the occupation existing now either but privatizing the war to be run by Eric Prince with his history is a recipe for a worsening disaster Certainly. Now, before we uh, move on, just uh, quickly, though, I guess to play devil's advocate, you know, some, uh, particularly those proponents of this sort of neoliberal policy and, uh, you know, perhaps people that don't even necessarily support the war in Afghanistan might look at an issue like this and say, well, Afghanistan has been devastated, uh, not just uh, socially, but environmentally and, of course, economically as well. Mm -hmm. Could this not potentially provide an opportunity to both you know the Afghan mining industry, but also to Afghans themselves. If there was, uh, you know, considerable investment into, you know, into minerals in Afghanistan, is that not something that uh, could potentially benefit the people? In theory, yes, uh, absolutely. In theory, but in practice, this is what faces people in re in Afghanistan today: corruption on a scale you cannot imagine. Uh, ministry of Mines, which is racked by cronyism, nepotism and corruption. Vast parts of the country which are racked by ongoing and worsening violence, Taliban, ISIS and others. Not uh, 
another major issue is the fact that a lot of the areas where the resources are kept are in conflict. So the only way that company X or Y can actually access the resources in those areas is by paying off insurgents to stay away, which is, again, a recipe for disaster. And finally, when I was there a few years ago, I went to an area about an hour from Kabul called Logar Province, which is one of the hearts of the insurgency. There is there a potential Chinese-run mine, a copper mine. It has one of the largest copper deposits in the world. The Chinese took ownership in 2007, about 10 years ago, but they have not mined anything since for two reasons. One, because they found um, these ancient Buddhist relics, which they're trying to remove and doing a terrible job in the process. And secondly, there's an insurgency going on. There's violence. There is huge amounts of instability, um, and they simply can't get the resources out because there's no infrastructure. And the locals that I spend time with who live near the mine, who had been sold the idea that they would get benefits from the mine, schools, mosques, roads, better health care, None of that has happened. None of it. They are pissed off. They're angry. They were on the verge of joining the insurgency almost as a sort of FU to the government. Um, they're really, really, and they're scared. They're really, really scared. And this idea in places like that, that a resource industry could potentially assist people, as I've seen time and time and time again from Afghanistan to Haiti to Papua New Guinea, that is the line that is sold by governments and mining companies, but the reality on the ground for locals, for the vast, vast majority of locals, is usually worsening poverty, environmental destruction, and insecurity. And in a place like Afghanistan, where there's already a raging war, it's a recipe for worsening violence. Finally, Anthony, since we uh, last spoke to you, you have uh, moved to Jerusalem and uh, you know, are now based there and, and, and living there. Now, uh, there's been a lot happening in Israel and in the occupied territories, uh, most notably, of course, in May last year when uh, the Trump administration decided to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, that sparked massive demonstrations, uh, not just in the occupied territories, but around the world. But uh, I guess most notably with the uh, the march uh, of return demonstrations, that where uh, many many people were killed by the IDF, and uh, some of the the bloodiest days I think uh, we've seen since the uh, the Intifada. There was you know huge demonstrations there and a lot of violence. Uh, can you, I guess, just give us a sense of what it's like uh, being in Jerusalem since the embassy move? And, uh, and, and in terms of what, what are you seeing from both uh, Palestinians and Israelis uh, in terms of their reaction to this move? Look, the embassy move by Trump last year was morally appalling, and yet on the ground... It does not change much. That doesn't mean at all that I supported the move, but it didn't change much because ultimately, in some ways, it really reflected the U.S. role in this conflict, which is this idea somehow that the U.S. has claimed for decades that they're an honest broker, they're trying to bring peace between the two sides. It's complete nonsense. No one believes it. No one thinks it's true. The Palestinians know it's not true. The Israelis definitely know it's not true because they're on their side. So... Yes, president after president refused to move the embassy. Trump did move the embassy for a range of reasons, I think, principally because one of his key um, donors, Sheldon Adelson, 
is a fanatical Zionist lobbyist who has been pushing for this for years, and secondly, Trump's big support base are evangelical Christians who also supported it. So there's a range of reasons why Trump did it. But on the ground itself, what really is more concerning than an embassy move, whether the US does it or Australia does it, and again, I don't support them doing it, is what's happening on the ground. Namely, settlements are expanding hugely. Um, There's now probably roughly 700,000 Jewish settlers living illegally in the West Bank. Violence by fanatical settlers is worsening against Palestinians. That's just in the West Bank. I live in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, which is occupied territory, and there's growing numbers of Jewish-Israeli so-called quasi-legal groups going to the Israeli courts and attempting to show that they have the right to a Palestinian's home, kicking those Palestinians out of their house, literally on the pavement. I mean, it's just crazy. It's happening more and more and more. And most of the world doesn't do anything about it. I mean, when it comes down to it, what really has been the international response? The European Union is toothless. The US obviously has shown what side it's on. The Arab countries are either corrupt, useless, in the pocket of Israel, or blind, increasingly, in fact, moving towards Israeli perspective because they're fearful of Iran. Who's gonna, who stands up to Israel? I mean, th- this is the ultimate issue. There is no political price being paid for Israel's 51-year occupation. I mean, that's the reality. So and that ignores, by the way, what's happening in Gaza. Over 2 million Palestinians trapped in an open-air prison uh, being shot at at the border fence. And in fact, what's been happening, you mentioned before, the Great March of Return protests about six months ago, they were huge and horrific, but they've been going on every Friday, every Friday ever since. And virtually every week, there are Palestinians being shot, sometimes shot dead. The media often doesn't report that. Al Jazeera, to its credit, does, and some other networks, but the majority do not. And this is really, I think, reflective of the fact that this is the only way that many Palestinians in Gaza have, a, have the ability to say, don't ignore us, don't forget us, we're here, we're resisting, we're under occupation, our lives are terrible. Um, people often don't realise that um, getting in and out of Gaza for Gazans is very, very difficult, if not impossible. There are two border crossings, Israel and Egypt, they're usually shut most of the time. Getting out, including for emergency medical care, is regularly refused. And within Gaza, the hospitals simply don't have very good medical attention. So what does that mean? It means a lot of people are suffering, are dying from diseases or conditions that would be treatable if they lived in, say, Jerusalem or Sydney or London or New York. So there is really, I think, in the Palestinian side, and I obviously don't want to generalize or speak for Palestinians, of course, but there is a real, there's a resignation, there's an anger, there is a belief that for now at least, and Trump, of course, let's not forget, is thinking about releasing his supposed deal of a century this year, which is a supposed peace plan between Israel and the Palestinians, which everyone's kind of fearful about because we're expecting it to be unbelievably biased towards Israel, almost guaranteed. Um it's a mess. I mean, it really is an absolute mess. And having reported on this issue since 2003, I've been visiting here every three or four years. I'm now living here. It's never been worse. And looking around the Middle East itself, 
when Israel-Palestine used to be an issue that got a lot of attention, not that it helped much politically on the ground, now the Middle East is falling apart in ways that have not, not been for decades. Um, Yemen, Syria, um, the Egyptian regime has never been more repressive. The Israel-Palestine issue has almost gone down the list of problems to be solved. And at the moment, there's no real push by any serious political force outside to change that, except for something like BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions, which is growing against Israel, I think has a, has a role to play. But this is a, a long struggle. And at the moment, um, the occupation is permanent. And that's the tragedy. I don't think it's forever, but it is going to be a sad reality for the foreseeable future.